podcast from the past. This is the podcast where we discuss historical figures or groups and what history would look like if we took them out and how they might fit into today. Today we are once again graced to the presence of Tom Beatty, whose sultry voice I'm sure you'll remember from the Beatles episode, our debut as it were. Indeed, and enjoyed it very much, I did. Well, I'm thrilled to episode. have you back. So did we, Tom. Yeah, so we'll be back again. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tom, what are we discussing today, or who, rather? I think this is the most interesting, <laughs> possibly the most interesting person we could have picked. Well, thank way. you. Yeah, this was Adam's choice, yes, yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can't take credit for that. But we've gone with Martin Luther for this week. Of course, we, we should maybe specify at this point not Martin Luther King, because that's Martin Luther King Jr. Different man. Different mm. man altogether. Um, Different fight. And about 600 years later. So, of course, Martin Luther uh, was born in 1483 yes, uh, near Leipzig in old East Germany. I think he's best known for his reforms or the Reformation that came after the bit that we're going to talk about later. He was somebody who tried to reform uh, the way that ecclesiastical polity or the way that people practice religion, yeah. and in this mm. case, Christianity. So kind of take it away from educated people with people who uh, had learned Latin mm-hmm. and kind of bring it to the masses in a way. But we're going to get into that a little bit more a bit later. Great. I think you're, you're up first, aren't you? I am. I am up to start, following on from Tom's lovely introduction. Martin Luther came from a, quite a wealthy family involved in business, and he was originally studying law. And during a, there was a really bad storm, and he basically promised that if he survived this storm, he would become a priest and commit himself to the faith, which he then did. And he joined the Augustinian Monastery in Erfurt, where he was then noted for his piety and how strictly he stuck to the rules of religion. And even in a monastery when he was starting out his religious career, I guess you call it that. And then during a trip to Rome, the only time he went to Rome, he became disillusioned with the Catholic Church mm. and felt it was you know, misbehaving, I suppose, and doing the wrong thing. Mm. And his big thing was just justification, which is God's ability to remove sin and declare the ungodly righteous, which is mm. you know, kind of what God does. Yeah. And because of that, he then... You know, he refuted all indulgences. <clears throat> and indulgences are those basically where you buy your way out of sin. This is the which, big stick and point with which Martin Luther. Is, it? This yeah. is the big one, yeah. This, this is, is his big thing. I think it's what he's most famous for. It's those, that 95 theses which he supposedly nailed to the door of All Saints Church. Yeah. But So, he, so when did he, so sorry, what was that? When did he do that? And that was 1517 15, mm-hmm. in Wittenberg, which was the city he was also a lecturer in. So he basically was just like, no, you can't buy your way out of sin or alleviate any of your punishment in hell. The Catholic Church is corrupt, which obviously now seems quite even more fitting than it yeah. then. Um, he was on to something. Yeah, he, he was ahead of his time. Yeah. Well, he wasn't really the first was. person to do this. There was an Englishman whose name I forget, who also whose ideas preceded him. Mm. but perhaps also a later topic for another show. <laughs> but going back quickly to what you said about the Reformation, mm-hmm. he, he posted the 95 Theses to the Archbishop of Mainz, Albert Brandenburg, on the 31st of October 1517, mm. which is taken generally as a date as the, of the start of the Reformation. Right. So there we go. Wow. So Luther believed that only that true inner and moral repentance was needed to save your souls, and indulgences just discouraged this because people were like, "Oh, I can pay, yeah, I don't, know, I don't know, X amount, and then I'll be saved." Yeah, yeah. And if you it, think about it, that's absolutely mad. That is so radical. Oh yeah, I mean, I think at the time to come out and say the Catholic Church is wrong at the time they are 
you know, arguably the most powerful body in the world. Pope Leo X, I think it was at the time, nice. or any pope really, they had the power to do anything. That even yeah. the Holy Roman emperors were kind of had to listen yeah. to, the, to the church because yeah. it's the church. And people were kind of killed for less, weren't they? Um, yeah. But I guess in a way, you know, he was kind of making a point about the practices rather than the religion itself. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. that's a really important thing because yeah. he came up with ways that would bring the ways of practicing the religion mm. to a lot more people. Definitely. could understand yeah. and process the information a lot better. Definitely. Well, it's interesting because to that end, he didn't just refute indulgences, but the complete way the Catholic Church operated. So he didn't think at all that you needed popes and priests to mm. be the messengers of God. Mm. His belief was that anyone who was baptized was able to interpret the Bible, and they were able to be just as valid a messenger from God as, as the pope, which is a pretty big thing to come yeah. out in mm -hmm. medieval Europe. It's say amazing. The pope is a lying twat. Putting the power, <laughs> he's totally trying to wrestle the power yeah. out of the hands of a really specific group of few yeah. who are probably lording their... Superiority to, yeah. over the rest of the nation. You look at the like you think about the Crusades, for example. Yeah. The Crusades, however many there were, they mm. were all sort of religiously motivated and in order to be I forget the word, but valid essentially they needed yeah. a Pope consecration, that's not the right word. A word, a a blessing from the Pope <laughs> to be a valid right. yeah. a valid crusade. Yeah. Which just shows the power they had because that was such a big part mm. of global history. So he didn't stop there, but he also translated the Bible into German, which then yeah, meant it was massively I'll disseminated across Europe, which is huge. For for the average person to be able to read the Bible and make up their own ideas and not have to be told really changes this elitist image of, mm. of Christianity. Am I right, Billy, in thinking that one of the big things that pushed him towards being pissed off about the whole indulgences thing is that the Pope had taken a lot of money from the indulgences that had been paid by ordinary people who'd committed sins and handed over money in order to be forgiven to pay for a massive basilica yeah, in Rome. Yeah, I think it's St. Peter's Basilica, I yeah. think. But that was what sparked this whole thing, this yeah. sort of... A growing disillusion, and that was the straw that broke the camel's back, yeah. I suppose. Mm -hmm. And eventually thought, this is ridiculous, this is enough, it's gone too far. Mm. I love God. And then he went on his merry way. Uh, <laughs> so he was excommunicated by the Pope, but he then burned the excommunication bill in public as a oh. sort of act of defiance, which is pretty badass for a medieval mm -hmm. priest. But How was he not executed? Everyone well, yeah. used to just be executed this is the interesting point. so so at the diet of worms where he went and pled his case right. judging was the holy roman emperor charles v mm. but martin luther was under the protection of the elector of saxony i think it's called frederick the wise right so he protected him and said no i'm not going to let this happen to him but i think he definitely would have been otherwise because yeah you can imagine that many people who were devoutly christian would have thought oh i'm serving god by killing him yeah well he will have been a heretic exactly this is exactly what he was mm. Um, but it's interesting to think about his, you know, because his actions obviously started the Reformation, but then also set off loads of rebellions across across mm. Europe, which he, funnily enough, disputed and said they're not valid, which is kind of odd. But I mm. think it was because he, the only thing he wanted was religious reform. That's all he wanted. He didn't want, you know, class reform. Was just religion. Yeah, he was just kind of focused on one, on one thing, on you know, the big house. This is what I love about him, that he, in a way, um, apart from the, the reforms that he tried to instigate he was kind of like an unconscious actor because a lot of the things that happened afterwards um although they were kind of things that you might not have even agreed with mm. uh I, I think nobody can deny sort of the impacts that they had mm. you know mm. in, in terms of like 
even the Enlightenment, I mean, yeah. we're talking like 250 years onwards from mm. the 95 Theses. Yeah, his, his actions just redefined the political and religious landscape across Europe Yeah, permanently, I think. I think so. But yeah. the one thing I did think is interesting is his movement, if you can call it that, came at the advent of the printing press. Yeah. Mm. So how much, I suppose perhaps a later stage of discussion, but that's an interesting thing to think about, is if he hadn't had the printing press, if he'd been 10 years before, what, would he really have been Definitely. that guy? I don't know. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, this is something I was going to bring up in my little section. Let's, se- let's hop over to you, segue. I think. It's That's about time. What a neat little segue that was. So I was going to talk about what you already kind of touched on, Billy. Thank you for that, by the way. Very, very interesting. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun to research. <laughs> I wanted to talk about kind of from within Germany itself, the impact that he had on mm. the German language and the development and the solidifying, solidification of the German language almost. I do. So you said before that the person who ruled the Diet of Worms was the Holy Roman Empire. So for those of you who don't know, at this time, Germany wasn't actually Germany as it is today. Germany as today was only actually unified as a country and made into the country Germany in 1872, I think it was. You're German, not me, I don't know. So before that, it was like lots of different little kingdoms, principalities, municipalities. Do you know what the difference between a principality is? Because you get like principalities, like Monaco's principality, I think. The Vatican. The Vatican. Vatican. I swear (laughs) Wales is a principality. I think it's got something to do with the sovereignty of... It's just got a prince rather than a monarch, I think. Because Liechtenstein is a principality and I think they've got a prince. I'm not really sure. Anyway, so we'll just pretend that we know what a principality is. Principality is. But think of it as kind of a a map of Middle Earth, lots of free cities. You know, there was no overruling ruler, even though obviously Sauron really wanted to be that. But Germany before 1872 looked very much like, you know, split up between all these different places. And the language reflected that, so there were lots of different dialects, accents, different words. Someone who came from one little village in what is now Bavaria probably would find it quite difficult to understand some words that were spoken in the village just along the, along yeah. the stream or whatever. So imagine the jump between, say, Hamburg and Vienna, which is obviously now in Austria, but back then was part of the same empire. So what was so incredible about what Martin Luther did in translating the German into Bible it put the Bible into German. <laughs> of course, the well-known dialect Bible. Apart from uh, apart from just translating the Bible into German, which obviously made it so much more kind of tangible and um, allowed the ordinary commoner peasant person, Joe Bloggs walking along the street, allowed them to, Yeah. So apart from you know empowering the position of the normal Joe Bloggs on the street, what it also did for German identity is incredible. So before that time, you know, we had all these different little municipalities and stuff speaking their their mm. different versions of German, but between them they couldn't really understand each other. What was amazing about Martin Luther's position is he came from uh, an area in Saxon-Anhalt, um, Saxony, which is in old East Germany, um, <laughs> and it kind of geographically, if you look at it on the map, kind of lay in between northern Germany and southern Germany and kind of centrally to mm. all of them. And apparently Martin Luther did a lot of travelling and he was also a linguist, he could speak Greek and Hebrew and Latin and German, so Hochdeutsch and Niederdeutsch, so that's High German and Lower German, so he could speak all these different languages. So in translating his Bible, what he did is he brought all of them together. He didn't just translate directly from the Latin Bible, but he also used the Hebrew and the Greek. 
So we brought them all together and kind of unified a specific form of German that no matter what form of German you spoke, you could understand it. He also really amazingly appreciated the need to get the German language from the ordinary person on the street. So what he said, yeah, he said, you don't ask Latin literature how to speak German. You ask the mother at home, you ask the children in the street and the common man in the market. Wow. So in this way, you know, everybody could could suddenly start reading his Bible, everybody could start creating a personal connection with the scripture themselves mm. as opposed to having to rely on uh, the priest or members of the clergy for it, which was So do you amazing. think his actions then set a precedent for the German language as it is today? For sure. I think it was it was the first instance of the German language being unified in such an obvious way. Right. And all of the different dialects being brought mm. into one and people from all over German-speaking countries being able to identify with one particular thing. Mm. And if you think about the, what they've sort of done for their sense of identity as well as a German-speaking people, because before that, probably, if you'd spoken to someone in, you know, right in the north of Germany about what mm. they thought about people who live in modern-day Munich, they yeah. probably wouldn't have felt much of a connection with them, whereas suddenly, yeah. through this unifying force, it would have had an enormous impact on what then became German yeah. identity. I guess with the power of languages, you can see, even today, if you look at in like Catalonia, for example, it's a really good example. Mm. You see separate difference between speaking Catalonian and speaking Spanish. Mm. So I guess the power of language is to be an identifying factor. Mm. It's, it's kind of underappreciated, I think. Definitely, for sure. And it's amazing, like today, Germany, there are so many different dialects and accents within Germany. Um, like the German that I speak is Hochdeutsch, so just your very standard. It's probably similar to the English that I speak, a bit on like the well-received side, mm. probably. And if I go to South Germany, people think that I've got a weird... You know, I've learned a bit of a proper German. So they think um, you're posh? I don't, I don't, well, that's a difficult question. <laughs> they don't necessarily have the same implications yes, like posh, no, no, they don't no, have no. a word for posh. It's just because I guess because what you speak is high German, right? Yeah. It's a direct translation, so. Yeah. The equivalent, like, I assume, on the, the other end of that is. It's just like proper. It's in like, parentheses, low German. Not, yeah. You know. It's just like proper German. It was embarrassing when I lived in Germany for a year because I pronounced all of the vowels correctly and I, like, conjugated right. verbs correctly and I got taken the piss out of by my friends who I lived with and I started learning how to talk a bit yeah, like a, a like, normal 24 year old. It's like when I speak here because I say my D's and my T's really hard everyone just thinks I'm really posh. Oh really? Yeah. That's just like I was on to the fact that you were South African. Oh really? I think so yeah. You've got a good I, ear. I can't quite recall whether, whether you know like a back or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I remember thinking I think you're South African. Ah, I, well. think, I think so. You have a finely tuned ear. Although, I, I mean, I don't know how clear my We're getting wild with facts in these, and it continues. I mean, the only other thing I really wanted to say, you already touched on it, Bill, which was about oh. the printing press. Yes. So, probably, Luther wouldn't have had such an enormous impact that he did end up having if he... He was just it was kind of a right time, right place kind of situation. So, Johannes Gutenberg had invented the printing press 70 years prior to Luther. And this was the first time that people could actually pump out publications in a mm. slightly mass production way instead of yeah. having to write it out painstakingly yeah. by hand. In shorthand. Oh, So, first of because of this, you know, Luther's Bible was able to be printed so much more quickly. And also because of the printing press, there was a rising demand for German speaking publications, mm. um, or German language publications, sorry. So in his lifetime, he sold 500,000 copies of his Bible, the Lutheran Bible, was sold. 
and between the years 1500 and 1530, one-fifth of all the works printed in Germany were his works, were his Bibles. Right, a bestseller. Well, yeah. <laughs> you top the charts. He did. Which is, yeah, just amazing. So it's kind of mad to think if, if Gutenberg hadn't done that, whether it would have taken a long time for his impact to kick in. Yeah. Could have delayed the Reformation and changed the face of history as we know. Indeed. Yeah. Well, Anna, thank you for yeah, your no exceptionally insightful view of the German language and culture. And it's very, it's and very, identity. it's very interesting actually. Still, how much he's celebrated so mm. much in Germany today. So really? the Reformationstag, Reformation Day, is so Fortress. celebrated mm -hmm. in those different states. Wittenberg, mm -hmm. um, which is where he nailed the, yeah. the theses. Its official name in Germany is Lutherstadt Wittenberg, which means Luther City. I hope there's a city named after me one day. I know. If you do Break that, then you break book. Yeah. Break Stadt. <laughs> It sounds very right. Soviet. <laughs> it's going to be in Germany. Oh, That's why I was going with Stan. East Germany. It's probably similar to. Is it? It's not. Sh where was Shakespeare born? Stafford. Stafford. Yeah. That's yeah. not got Shakespeare in it, has it? I'm sure. Exactly. No. I thought it might have. Do we want to know Shakespeare? Shakespeare. <laughs> Shakespeare. <laughs> um, Thomas, our beautiful guest on yeah. TV. So, mm -hmm. what, what what did you find most interesting about Luther, and what have you decided to focus on, Tom? In a way, it's not about Luther. It's it's it's, it's more so about the impact he had and the effect he had over the span of maybe we're talking 200, 300 years. So That's okay. I think it it's about if you take these kind of significant actors out of history, we can then envisage kind of how different life would be. And I think if you was to take Luther out of history, certainly the democratization of the talk there about like the Lutheran Bible. Um, bringing those people together in terms of a language. Mm. But I think that the main thing that it brought together was ideas. Yeah. Mm. Um, so the ability to kind of spread those ideas across, so in that sense, like regions within the Germanic uh, region itself. So again, it kind of democratised the ability to, you know, share those ideas with mm. people. And I think leading on to kind of, from an English perspective, it kind of had its biggest impact, I think, with obviously the, the English Reformation. So Within 20 years of the Lutheran Bible first being published, we had... Um, I think that was 1534? So he first published, sorry, he, I think he first published the New Testament, and then by the time he published yeah. the Old Testament as well, it was 1534. Yeah, so King declared in 1536 that every... Which king, sorry? Uh, king Henry VIII. Right. Oh, um, that's a big one. Oh, that's a big name in, in English <laughs> Well, this is the interesting thing. Luther, or his ideas, allowed him to divert from the path of the right. Set a precedent. Um, of papacy. So it set that precedent that he was able to then deform the religious polity within his own country. So in this case, he wanted to remarry because he wanted a male heir. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I think we all know that story. That that that's how it was at the time, wasn't it? Yeah. They they had to produce kind of a, a, a male heir. Mm. Um, so he had to divorce his first wife, who was a Catholic. Uh, the only way he could do that, of course, was to basically reform the religion in the mm. country. Yeah. So he's clutching at straws, and yeah. the big thing that gives him that opportunity is is Luther. Yeah. Right. These new ideas that within a generation of those ideas being created in a way or, or formulated, you've then got a nation within Europe who basically go down that path. Obviously for reasons that you might say are right or wrong, but there's no denying kind of the impact that they had within England. So he Henry VIII was the one who created the Church of England, is that right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so purely for divorce reasons. 
yeah. I've never really, I've got to say, I don't know enough about the reasons for it, but all I've ever known about Henry VIII's Reformation is mm-hmm. ransacking churches, mm-hmm. ripping the all of their, yeah. yeah, all of the monasteries, taking all of their gold. Beheading mm-hmm. um, people. Yeah. Wives. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. Can you name all of his wives? How many did he have? Six. Six wives, yeah. I, can, I, can, I think I can only name Catherine of Aragon. Yeah. Anne Boleyn. Jane Seymour. Yeah. There's another Catherine from there. Catherine Howard. <laughs> Anne of Cleves. Yeah. Catherine Park. Wow, well, yeah. three Catherines. Tom, you put me to shame. Well, one, one, one yeah, is with a K, and right. I think the other was with a C. That's not a real Catherine, but I'm sure you won't get me on that. <laughs> I'll allow it. Yeah. You know, sorry, continue. So basically, but, but what happened after Henry's death is interesting as well. So it allowed for the establishment of kind of a middle way, if you like. So between Calvinism, mm. uh, which mm. came out of Protestantism, yeah. Lutherism, and then Catholicism, so kind of a, the middle way between Mary the First, who was Henry, Henry the Eighth's daughter, mm-hmm. who was a, a fervent Catholic because of the way he treated his mother, yeah. her mother. Um, so then you had kind of Bloody Mary, who you know executed Protestants within their five-year reign. And then obviously about a thousand years, a <laughs> hundred years after that, roughly, you then got Charles II, and yeah. his whole reign was. This is the only thing I remember from my A level. Mm-hmm. Was rife with Catholic versus Protestant. Yeah. Tensions, and that's, you know, that eventually led to yeah. him being beheaded, and then the Republic, and then us being declared a Republic for a yeah. random few years, and Oliver Cromwell deleting Christmas. Well, this is one of the most, <laughs> <this is> one <laughs> of the most interesting Christmas. things, in my opinion, with, with Martin Luther and kind of the impact that he had. You had basically 300 years of war mm. uh, that came out of the ideas that he had. And this is where it goes back to me saying he was kind of an unconscious actor mm-hmm. in these things. So, of course, he was kind of anti-Catholic in his own life. But then you have kind of the adaptations of his own his own thoughts in a way, his own theses that yeah. came out of, you know, what he'd come up with. So, basically, within this country, things were very split, as you got that there, because of basically the Tudor dynasty that went from Henry VIII onwards in terms of the Reformation. So... He swung from Catholicism back to Protestantism within, you know, the the same dynasty. Yeah. And I think the big one with this that I was going to lead on to was within this, certain groups of people felt very ostracised by that. Um, As religion tends to do. Yeah. And you, what we got from that was the Pilgrim Fathers, of course, who, who right. travelled over to America um, wow. to, flee from, wow. to flee from... Ostracization and, and persecution of default. You've spun a lovely little web there, Tom. Yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. So, do you think, and this is a big fat question, but do you think America is being founded as this kind of, or being based on this idea of we are religiously free and we are free for all people of all ideas? Do you think that wouldn't have happened? And America, yeah. how it is seen today, would perhaps be different if that. I think it was founded on those cornerstones, mm, if you like, yeah. those principles. And obviously we have the principles of Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. All men are created free and equal. Yeah. Does so that make Luther the... Original founding, founding father. <laughs> the founding grandfather of the United States. But him on the one that I thought... I wonder how many Americans have actually heard of Martin Luther. Not a king. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, it is an interesting. Let's do a poll. Follow us on Twitter, guys. <laughs> at BFTP Pod. I think he went over on the Mayflower and, and gave them a piece of his mind. That's that's my oh, really? theory. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Oh. Completely out of context. <laughs> history there. Just went. But in a in a way, I think that is the big impact that, that Martin Luther had. And 
like I say, I think he was an unconscious actor in this, so I can't give him full credit. Yeah. But basically, we get the Enlightenment out of that. Yeah. So out of the revolution in, in 1776, we then get over in Europe in 1789, we get the, the French, French Revolution, revolution. Of course. Well, yeah. Then we get like um, Thomas Paine two years after that who spoke of the rights of man, so we're getting like human rights out yeah. of that now. And so then we're even talking about kind of the enlightenment and yeah. the principles of that, uh, human rights that we have today. So I basically think that in a roundabout way, unbeknownst to him as an unconscious actor, he was basically the founding father, to use the phrase from before, oh. of the modern enlightenment. Yeah. Well, <sighs> there I say we have Tom's thoughts on what would happen if Martin Luther didn't exist, mm. or an idea of what it would look like. But Anna, Penny for your thoughts? Oh God, if Martin Luther, well, I just, I, obviously the split in the church wouldn't have happened. Yeah. The thing about it is, when I was reading research for the German language section, people had tried to translate the Bible into German before, but they'd only managed to do it in a specific kind of German, so either into Hochdeutsch or into Niederdeutsch. Yeah. Um, so it still only appealed to a certain section of society at that time. And I don't know, just because of the person that he was and because of, he was such a skilled linguist, I don't yes. know that someone would have managed to translate it the same way that he did and yeah. reach such yeah. an enormous audience. Mm-hmm. And even if they had, perhaps earlier, they wouldn't have benefited from Gutenberg's yeah. press. Mm. Perhaps later, Maybe the timing wouldn't have been right still for the demand of German publications. So I don't think it would have had the reach within the German yeah. and then the French and then the English and then the Italian population that it did mm. at the time that Luther did it and in the way that he did it. I also think you need to think, was he successful because of his, not just his translation publication, but what he was trying to do to the church. For sure. They kind of worked in synchronicity mm. to make him the figure he was. Mm-hmm. I guess he was kind of, not white place. Rings <laughs> I lost my one ring. Yeah. What? There's, there's movies about that. There's movies about that. Like I don't know what it's called. Ring. Something yeah, with a hobbit. Yeah. I don't know. No, but I think he was kind of, yeah, right place, right time. It had to be him in that moment. Like most people mm. in history, I think. This is what I love about the, the concept of this show. Oh, um, you flatter us. Every time. You put down the quote, by the way, that goes out with us. But <laughs> this is what I love about it. That I noticed that a lot of people say, oh, but someone would have come along and done the same thing. This is the really interesting thing about alternative history, that you, you can't really say for certain that someone would have come no, along. exactly. And also, kind of, the things that it led on to, uh, you know, we certainly can't say that would have happened without, yeah. in this case, Martin Luther. So, my favourite little question, going to pluck ugly little Martin Luther, because we can't pretend he was good looking. He was, it looked a bit like a toad, I Yeah. Going to pluck him up, and we're going to take him out of 14, oh God, 15, 15 30s, whenever. Mm. Uh, bring him back to life. Get, get rid <laughs> right of this room. Get rid of this. Well, yeah, here he is. And then introduce him to twenty nineteen. What? What? What do we think? I. Firstly, he was anti-Semitic. Yes, it's because religion now is less powerful than it was then, and he he was so radical. Mm. I don't think religion now is in a place where it's powerful enough for those reforms to take place because it's so set in its ways. And it's not what people think about as needing to change mm. really anymore. Mm. He would have made some national newspapers, <laughs> but I don't think he would have been globally heralded as the saviour of Christendom. No. Or, not that he was then, but I think he wouldn't have had near the impact he had then. I mean, his whole thing, wasn't it? The 
position of the individual and yes. power for the individual. So he probably would have had a field day how we are at the moment, where we're so individual focused and the individual can do anything, sap your own business. He would have loved capitalism. Yeah. But in all seriousness, I, I do think that basically he's one of those very few people in history where if you plonk them out of the history that they came from, you know, it kind of boggles the mind in a way yeah. because it, he's so influential in the basic principles of how we live, yeah. particularly in, you know, the Western world yeah. or the way we live our lives. You know, it's so instrumental, the things that he instigated in a, in a way that I don't even think we think about it. I think that's the most interesting thing about yeah. him. I would highly recommend a visit to Wittenberg. I went two or three years ago with my mum for the 500th Reformationsjahr, yeah, the 500th uh, yeah. Yeah. anniversary yes, the of the Reformation. <laughs> And they turned the whole village into, the whole village basically was made into a museum and it was cool. absolutely brilliant. I've got to that. Honestly, yeah. Tom, you'd yeah, love it. Next year, Tom, me and you. Let's do it. Honestly, it's a fab day out. Yeah. I think on that note, a suggestion of a holiday. Thank you very much, Tom, for, for joining us no today. You've been a lovely guest, as always. Yeah. Before we go, I did say it earlier, but again, do follow us on Twitter at BFTPpod. I'll give yeah. it a follow. <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't gone too public yet, but it so will soon. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Send us, send us out to your friends if you've enjoyed the show, even if you haven't enjoyed the show. Friends, relations, family, and if you've got any recommendations for future shows, hit us up. You can find us both on Twitter. I'm Anna Stauffenberg, Billy Break. Give us a shout if you've got any any good ideas. Thanks for joining us. Cheers. See you next time. Goodbye, and I love you. <laughs>